0: Father, I I pray that you would help us to consider this time of year special, something that is just not ordinary every day, that we would consider what you have done in giving us the gift of your Son. And Father, may we be able to give gifts, not necessarily physical gifts, but the gift of life to those who don't have it, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, a word of encouragement, during this time of year, we ask that you would help us to consider these days in which we live and still find joy in resting in you and the knowledge of your word. We know it guides us, it protects us, and it helps those who need help. Father, we had asked for that this morning, delivering it to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I was going over the message here today, and I'm thinking about going to Cambodia in January, I was thinking the context in which the people were surrounded and how they lived and what the temple was like and what the area around Jerusalem, because we'll find out that there were a bunch of suburbs that people brought individuals who were lame and they were on mats and they needed to be healed and it says from all the towns around jerusalem that would be the equivalent of us here in lakeside whether you go to alpine or santee or el cajon just one of the communities around and they had the temple as the center they would come from those towns in order to bring people that needed healing from the apostles that were there But it's not like it is today. We so often think of our context here. When I got up this morning and I reviewed the message, I went in and I took a shower. I was very thankful for hot water. I got under it and I said, oh, the hot water is so good. And then I immediately thought of being in Cambodia And in Cambodia, they have these large water pots in some of the villages that are next to the houses that have rain gutters that go into them. And you would often see somebody outside getting a little pan and taking their early morning bath or shower from those water pots. And most of the world doesn't have hot running water. Or when we went to Africa, you know, from the city of Entebbe and you go out into the outskirts and up north the houses would degrade a little bit there would first be buildings made out of stucco and wood or brick and then you would get to a mud hut then you would get to a hut that only had sticks on it and then you would get to an area that had sticks and a hole in the ground and people would live in that even today they, they're living like that up in Kotito uh, in northern Uganda And that's how the people lived here. They didn't have the big metropolitan sewers and hot water and everything else and they were constantly in need and there were thousands and thousands of people like that. Even today, that's how most of the world lives and we have so much here, so much to be thankful for. Have you noticed how quickly it happens that you gain the weight that you were trying to lose all year last year and Thanksgiving hits? I I noticed that was like. What happened? You struggle for weeks and weeks because we have so much and it's so good. The berry pie, the stuffing, the gravy, the turkey or whatever you had for Thanksgiving. And, And there's so much of it that is there. We're so blessed. And back then during the time of Jesus, they didn't have that. There were probably no issues with cholesterol back then because they had such a, a clean diet off the land and dates and berries and nuts and things that they had. Of course, they had meat uh, back then, but it was completely different. I also noticed uh, over the uh, past couple of weeks, we walked into... I actually went to a store over here by Lindo Lake, and I was just impressed how much they have in the store. I, I walked through... It's a small store. I go, wow Look at all this stuff. People were constantly in want in the time of Jesus and after his ascension as well. And the people there, they enjoyed rich fellowship. And remember, they were in the temple areas, Solomon's colonnades, which were there. And many believed, and the people sold their properties to distribute anyone who was in need because the needs were quite large at that time and they were all healed of their infirmity those who were brought from the surrounding towns And, and that's where we're picking it up and this is a history of the new testament church how it started we always want to know the origins how it started when you get to know somebody you want to ask them so where are you from uh, where did you go to school? Where did you go to high school and elementary school? And was it in this state or was it in Minnesota cold? Or where did you grow up and experience your childhood? And did you go to college, did you go to university? And from there, what did you do as your first job? You want to know these things about an individual. You're getting to know them. Well, that's what we're finding out in the book of Acts. So I'm going to pick it up in chapter 5, verse 12. It says the apostles performed many miracle signs, miraculous signs, and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnades. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. And so you have 12 apostles, and they're healing everybody that shows up. No matter who it was, they get healed. And could you imagine... Showing up to a place like this, everybody's in want and need and they see a miracle like this. You can describe it in nonverbal terms like this. You know what that means, right? Their minds are blown. It's, it's, It's like, this is incredible. And because of that, many were getting saved. Now, there were those who didn't dare join them. Now, those would be the regulars probably in the Temple Mount area. It's like the Sadducees, as we'll find out, they didn't want anybody associating with them, and they wanted the apostles to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. But these people would come from surrounding towns, and they would go back to their towns, and more people would come, and they would be involved in the fellowships of the saints. And they would hang out in Solomon's Colonnade. they would go wow, this is just wonderful. All of this that's taking place. And so the people that would join them were probably, again, from the surrounding towns. Now, verse 15 says, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Not one was missed. Now, imagine being Peter. I wonder if the other apostles had this gift as well, where they could walk and their shadow would fall on somebody and they'd be miraculously healed. Maybe somebody who was lame. Maybe somebody who had lost an arm or who had leprosy it had completely restored. All of those things were probably taking place. Now, we have tried to copy this today. Not necessarily somebody's shadow, because that would truly be a miracle. But there are those who are the televangelists that love money. Now, when I first became a Christian, maybe you did as well, uh, Patty and I, we used to sit down and watch Kenneth Copeland. We liked Kenneth Copeland. And we thought, you know, he's pretty good. You know, he had some good messages. And there were a few others who were out there. Of course, uh, I never turned into Paul and Jan Crouch. Uh, It it just wasn't my cup of tea. But there were several other evangelists on there. Benny Hinn, he wasn't my cup of tea. We'd kind of watch a little bit what's going on. But there's a whole bunch of these televangelists. And they're really concerned about money. Now, I think I've mentioned in the past, Kenneth Kenneth Copeland is worth over 400 million dollars. All the money that gets sent into him. And the Reverend Al Sharpton, I just read the other day. Now, he's more political, but he is a reverend, quote-unquote. I think the Bible teaches there's only one reverend, and that's Christ. But he has the title of reverend. But they just got him $1 million to ride on private jets all over the place. And, you know, if if you're going out giving the gospel and that's the only means available, I I get that. But if you're just doing it, why, why don't you give the money? Remember, Jesus talked about the rich man who had great wealth. He said, why don't you sell all you have and give it to the poor and come up and follow me? that type of thing and not that it's a sin to be rich it's not a sin to be rich because without rich people there wouldn't be jobs and so you need the rich people to give the jobs to those who aren't so rich and it's okay it's those who walk under the pretense of following christ that accumulate all this money and they they use it for their own gain they have several houses everywhere they have jets everywhere creflo dollar uh, he's one that he needed to buy a jet and if you remember Oral Roberts, he needed $8 million or the Lord was going to take him home. All, all of those things that are out there. Well, how do they manipulate the people? And hopefully you haven't been taken advantage of uh, by some of these deals that are out there. You know, like the prayer cloths, the miracle seeds, the miracle spring water. All You, have, you can look on Etsy and you can get miracle spring water. You can. And you can get prayer cloths. And these prayer cloths, you know, you can get some. They're available for $5. Or you can buy 100 of them for $415. And, of course, that would be for ministries. And ministries can pass out these prayer cloths. And if you have this prayer cloth, well, there's more power in that prayer cloth. And you're going to have your prayers answered. And you can probably put the prayer cloth on the part of your body that's ailing you. And that part will be miraculously healed. And have you guys heard about the true cross Relics, what that is. Of course, uh, in several of the early centuries, they claim to have found the cross, the actual cross of Jesus Christ. And you can go on the internet and you can buy like a little sliver, like a splinter that you would get. You can buy that, and it's usually encased in a glass, a little glass uh, amulet or something. It's right in the middle of a cross. And you can buy one of those and you can get them for like $50 all the way up to $2,500 a sliver of the cross of Christ. And if you have that relic with you, of course, blessings come to you and you want to be sure to get yours today because tomorrow they're going to go up and there's a sale today. And that's one of the things I saw about the finest holy water on earth. This big website. it's You can get your finest holy water on earth. Of course, they go to Sparklet's Bottle and they just put the water in there and they they put in a little bottle and they give you that little bottle and you can get that for about $15, that holy water uh, that's there. And, and then there is uh, Peter Popoff. That guy is just a... Uh, oh, the shenanigans of that guy. Like if you do a history search on what he has done. Well, he has miracle mana, And if you get the miracle manna it's like uh, i think it's like a piece of wonder bread with no edges on it and then they put it in a little cellophane and it's sent to you and of course you send in your offering and you get the miracle manna from god and blessings will come your way or the miracle seeds And and it's like if you hold those seeds in there and you cast your seeds and then you're going to have a harvest be reaped back to you with all this money and you can buy these seeds for a limited time. You can buy these seeds for up to a thousand dollars if you just send in your money, it's going to come to you. Now hopefully none of us have taken advantage of those wonderful sales that are out there and it's just a way for men and women to get your money it doesn't do anything now have prayer clause or have has clothing worked before in the New Testament it has and we'll get to it next chapter 19 verse 11 it's where God did extraordinary miracles through Paul in verse 12 it says so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them Pastor Chuck used to say, well, he could see this happening where people need a point of connection in their faith. They need something tangible because it's difficult. We worship God and we've never seen him. We've never touched him. We've never been before him in any way except in spirit. And it's difficult for people. And that is what some of these televangelists take advantage of is you need something tangible to kind of put your faith in, even though it doesn't become an idol, it's it's your mode of operation. And this happened in the New Testament. Can it still happen today? Well, sure, it can still happen today. And if people get these prayer cloths and these splinters of the original cross of Jesus Christ, my only question of that is, when do the splinters run out? And are they pulling the rest, uh, the remains with tweezers out and dropping them in these little um, glass things to send them to you and putting those in crosses? I, I don't know exactly how they do it. My question is, the people that do that the people that just go get some wood and put the splinters in there and they 're sending them out, do they have a pang of conscience like this is really isn 't the cross of Christ, but it 's like it, and so you know it'll it 'll work do they justify it in some way and there 's always going to be people that will take advantage of Christians now, I think Christians have a tendency uh, we have a tendency to be a little gullible I mean just look at the churches that are out there and the things that they 're practicing. We have that tendency, and that's why God provided the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists you know, to equip the people of God for works of service until Jesus Christ comes back and makes his church whole with him. That's going to take place, but we need to be harmless as doves and wise as serpents and just ask God to give us a little discernment. Like I said, could these things happen? Yes, they could, and I don't doubt for a minute that they could happen but when somebody wants money in return freely you have been given or f- freely you have received and freely give that type of thing that's how the gospel is supposed to work and so if somebody is going to make an income off of some of these uh, little trinkets that are going to be sent out i think we it's good that we avoid those and tell others to do the same thing now There's another example in Scripture. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? She reached out and she thought to herself, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she had that point of connection. So I just want to establish that this indeed can take place. But remember, if there's money tied to it, it's false and to avoid it. Now, going on here, there was this Jealousy that was going through the Sadducees. It says, then the high priest, in verse 17, and all his associates, that means all the family members of the high priest, there they were Sadducees, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now, I used to have them confused. Envy and jealousy, what they were. Now, envy is a negative feeling of desire centered on someone who has something that you do not and i'd like to say it's more like a whiny attitude i want that that's kind of envy that's what envy is or that's not fair that they should have it and i don't you know that that's envy And God tells us, do not envy. Do not covet something that somebody else has. But jealousy is a different animal altogether. It's a feeling of resentment, bitterness, and hostility to someone who has something that you don't. You're not getting what somebody else has. And you're wanting them not to have it. And you want to point to any means to harm them because they do have it. It's like... Why the nerve of the... You get this attitude in your heart. And I was trying to think of an example. Uh, you know, I have a, a penchant for... Uh, and a predilection to accents. I love accents. When we went to Ireland, you know, I started trying to pick up their accent over there. And the kids that were in Tala... And this was years ago. They would stand at the door. And my job was to be the door monitor to make sure they didn't come in through that way. And so I turned to them. And I tried to copy them. I said... Where are you from? And they turned to me and they said, Where are you from? And I said, I'm from the United States. Where are you from? And they said, "No, you're not. You talk like us." Is what? And we started going back and forth. I I just loved doing that. Or I go down to Mexico, you know, and, and I have I've had in the past several employees from Mexico, and I I try to copy their accent a little bit, and they kind of laugh, and then they try to copy my accent, and I just really enjoy it. I I, I loved it when we went back to uh, Nashville, Tennessee. I love country music, you know. I I really enjoy it. I can make that confession to you guys. But, but the way that some of the country stars talk, you know, I love listening to how they speak. Now, with that, how am I going to tie that into jealousy? Well, there is a female artist that sings country music named Leanne Womack. And she has a song, and the song is, I'll Think of a Reason Later. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not. But I just want you to see if you can pick out the jealousy in the words of these songs, and, and this is how the words go. I heard he was going to marry some girl from Denver, and sometimes it helps to put the accent in there, you know, when she's saying this. Then my sister came over, had the Sunday paper with her. There was the girl on the social page looking in love and all engaged. We decided she don't take a very good picture. It may be my family's redneck nature, rubbing off, bringing out unladylike behavior. It sure ain't Christian to judge a stranger, but I don't like her. She might be an angel who spends all winter bringing the the homeless blankets and dinner, a regular Nobel Prize winner, but I really hate her. I'll think of a reason later. I drew horns and blacked out her tooth with a marker, childish yes but she'd made such a thin little target. I couldn't be happier on my own, but I got the slightest of a jealous bone, and seeing her with him tends to enlarge it. Inside her head may lay all the answers from curing diseases and baldness to cancer, salt of the earth and a real good dancer, but I really hate her. I'll think of her reason later. That's jealousy. It's like, I see her, and I just... I hate her. I hate her already. You know, and now, guys, guys, we don't do this. We don't look at other guys and, oh, I really hate him. Look how good he looks and his hair's just right. And, you know, he has all the right clothes and his shoes. Oh, he's got boots too. You know, that we don't do that. What guys do, we have our hands in our pocket. Somebody looks okay, you go, hey, man, what's up? Hey, what's up? That's it. Women I'll often do this. I've walked behind my wife. And just a little bit, you know. I carry her, what do they call it, the uh, rope. You know, I walk behind her. And as we're walking, I watch women's eyes, what they do. And they look at other women. And first, they look at their face. Then their clothes. Then their shoes back up right in the eye it's it, you can see it and i'm just going oh man and uh, you women don't do it i know but most women that's what they do they just look at it and they have these judgments in their mind and you i, I can almost hear leanne wilmax I, I don't like her you know that that type of thing or she thinks she's so pretty and w- whatever the case might be But that's just our natures. That's what we do. And men are different than women. And women will do that more often than men. Men, you know, if we don't like something, we usually just will say a few words and that's it. And if somebody doesn't like it, well, they can come back and we'll go to fisticuffs. You know, that type of thing. That's what guys do. But the women, it's different. They have the power of words. Now, we know that women speak more than men, right? And they have a larger vocabulary and they have a tendency to put that out there. And whether it's uplifting and holy and good and righteous and encouraging, all those things, that's great. And that's what we're supposed to cultivate. But women have a tendency to have more words and they use some off-color words every once in a while. I'm not saying cussing, but they they can look at other women and, and just in their mind or verbally, they can say things against them. I think they, I never saw it, but wasn't there a movie called Mean Girls or something like that? I'm sure it was something that was verbal that was coming out. And God tells us this idea of jealousy, whether for a man or a woman. Now, a guy might look at another guy's truck and say, well, I want that. Why does he have that? You know, that type of thing. But it's not going to be too often. But the Sadducees were jealous. And they, they could have said, well, I don't like them, is what they could have said. I don't like these guys, and we mean them harm. Go and arrest those guys. They were jealous in their heart. Remember, Jesus condemned the Pharisees and the Sadducees for their inner attitude. And this is opposition that would come from without. It it comes from another sector. But inside, they were experiencing this great and wonderful fellowship. Things were being shared between them. I'm sure there were words of encouragement all over the place. People would walk out of there just thrilled because they had been healed. They would go back to the towns and their families. And they would be encouraged as well. And the word of God would just spread as a result of this. And there was so much unity there. That's exactly what was pervasive in and amongst the believers that met in Solomon's colonnade. But the Jews, they were dissatisfied and there was disunity between them and the believers. And they wanted to stop whatever these believers were doing, whatever these apostles were doing. Now remember, Jesus was opposed from without. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him. In Luke chapter 11, verse 53, even the apostle Paul, before he got saved... On the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 26, verse 9, it says that he did everything possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was just brutal and ruthless. And then Paul, once he became a believer in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, he said, there were many that opposed me. Now, anybody that's doing God's work, you're going to be opposed. You just have to get used to it. And when that opposition comes, you don't have to retaliate back. I I saw this video of some guys witnessing. They were out there, they had some signs and stuff, and they were just street witnessing. They weren't doing anything bad and there's two guys standing. One guy who is probably about five foot seven, a guy next to him is about six foot three. And this guy comes up and he doesn't like what the guy's sign says, and he's yelling at him in his face, and he's just trying to get his goat. And you see this guy who's like right up in his face, he rears back and he starts to get ready to throw a punch. And this punch is coming right in for the guy, and the guy who's six foot three, his arm's so long, he just reaches over and stops it. It just hits it, and he looks at him and goes, No, that's not what we're supposed to do. And if you go out and witness on the street, you're going to have opposition. It's just going to happen. In your families, you're going to have opposition. Anybody that is not in Christ. I can remember I had just become a believer and I I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to do, how to witness, but I, I was real zealous for the Lord. And at the time, I was working as a bartender. Believe it or not, and uh, I, I didn't drink the uh, alcohol that was there. I just mixed it and tried to be the best bartender I could. Well, I was asked to do a private party, and private party is somebody that I knew, and I was—I knew the daughter uh, of this person, and I witnessed to this daughter all the time. And the daughter would go and tell the mother that asked me to be the bartender. And so I was bartending, and when I went to the house and I was doing it, and they were happy with everything that was going on, uh, she came up to me and afterwards and she said, I hear you're going to church. I said, yes, ma'am, I'm going to church. Oh, that's wonderful. That's good. Just as long as you don't go overboard. Amen. Well, here I am today. I think I went a little overboard in that, just trying to be a witness. I just wanted everybody to have the gospel. I wanted everybody to have what I had. Now, I haven't received opposition like they did in the New Testament times here or people around the world. You know, in Sudan, they're dying for their faith. The pastors that they send out, they, they get killed. And we will be opposed. But we do also know that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, that if we are opposed and we're intending for the faith we should do it without being frightened in any way by those who would oppose us because we know that we have an inheritance now the apostles were arrested and they were thrown in jail but God released them then this is a great story they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail but during the night in verse 19 an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out go Stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. What a great story. They're in jail. The guards are there. It's still locked. That means the angel opened the doors. If they were in chains, took off the chains, shut the doors again, made sure they were locked. The guys couldn't even tell that they were there. Now, how do you do that? Do you just blind supernaturally or make the guys invisible? You know, you got 12 guys walking out here. There could have been more apostles by that time, but at least 12 of them are walking out, and they just march right out of the jail. And they're told, now listen, at sunup, you go to the temple, the angel tells them. And so they go to the temple. Imagine the guys walking out of the jail. Did you just see that? And they were totally excited. Yeah, this is all right. man. How righteous. This is wonderful. And so they go and start teaching. And there's crowds in Solomon's colonnade that's there. And so sheepishly, the captain of the guard shows up and says, uh, excuse us. Uh, would you come with us The Sanhedrin? Want to talk to you? And they go, okay, no problem. So they set out with them, but they feared the people because there would have been thousands of people there listening to what they had to teach. Now, this idea of fear, we are to fear God and not men. We know that Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding And I believe the fear of the Lord begins with humility. That we we fear God. He's righteous. He's going to be the judge. We bow both physically and in our hearts. We recognize who He is. That's fearing the one who is all powerful. Not to the point of trembling, because perfect love casts out all fear. When we're walking in the steps that God wants us to in His commandments, there's no fear. But when we step out of that as believers, afterwards, there's guilt, there's disappointment, maybe even a little fear like, I I shouldn't be doing this, and this is not good. But when you're in the love of Christ, there is no fear because perfect love, like I said, it casts out all fear. But fear has to do with punishment. Now these guys, the captain of the guard and, and all of his soldiers were showing up they feared the crowd because they knew that what they were doing was going to go against the crowd and they maybe even felt on the inside that you know, they're having us doing this but look at all these people that are getting healed and I don't even know if I'm doing the right thing here and so that's how they approached them and remember there's thousands of people here this isn't a small gathering there's lots and lots of people in the area of Solomon's colonnade So, going on with this, verse 27, "...having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name," he said. "...you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood." Are they guilty of this man's blood? Yes, they are. And he even goes on to say it again. Peter indicts them in verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. And here comes the finger pointing, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Now they are already jealous. They already wanted to hurt these guys. And all 12 of them are standing there, maybe a couple other witnesses, and they're saying, and you were the ones that were responsible for murdering Jesus. Now, how do you think the Sadducees felt at that point? Who do you think you are? You know, they're filled with pride and this. They wanted to harm these guys, and we'll find out that they actually beat them. Now, Jesus was killed in the worst possible way. Who doesn't, you know, somebody's ever asked you, how do you want to die? Well, of course, you want to die in your sleep, no pain, you just want to go, right? Most people don't die that way, but that's how we prefer to die. What would be the worst possible way to die? Well, it's crucifixion. Because it lasts for hours and hours and hours, and you suffocate, and the heart has stress on it, and the bones get out of joint. And the thirst is just excruciating that you would have there. And the pain and the blood associated with that and the curling of the hands because the spikes that go through that part of the wrist there that would hold anyone on the cross and the pain in the feet. And every time you pull up to breathe or push up with your feet, there's just excruciating pain. It's a horrible way to die. And Jesus was the most innocent individual that had ever lived And so that's why they were filled with guilt. They knew that he had not done anything wrong and they crucified him on trumped-up charges and all because they were jealous of him and later they were jealous of the apostles. And it says what happens to Christ after this in verse 31. God exalted him to his own right hand as the prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to israel we are witnesses of these things and so is the holy spirit whom god has given to those who obey him when they heard this they were furious and wanted to put them to death you could probably see the clenching of the teeth like just being angry at these apostles He goes on in verse 33, When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. So this Gamaliel, as we'll see, was pretty wise. And Paul was actually taught by Gamaliel. In verse 35, Says, then he addresses them, Men of Israel, this is Gamaliel speaking, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now Gamaliel, I'm sure he contemplated, because he was brought in waiting for the prisoners, Prisoners weren't there. Look, they're over in the temple courts and they're teaching. How did they get out of the prison to the temple courts? Doors are still locked. Gamaliel goes, hmm, I wonder what happened. I wonder how these guys got over there. Was somebody paid off or was it something more? By the way, all these miracles are taking place of these people who are walking and being healed and demons are being cast out. Oh, maybe I should speak up. And tell the rest of the Sanhedrin what is going on. Tell these Sadducees, you better temper your anger here. And so there's a lesson here that no one can thwart or frustrate or prevent the will of God. Whatever God's will is, we're not going to outsmart him, so to speak. He knows the past. And he knows the future. He knows every thought that we have when you're lying on your bed or when you're working or driving down the roadway. He knows exactly what you were thinking, and he knows that of every single person. He knows billions of thoughts at one time. And we're not going to outsmart God. He's a master chess player. He's never going to lose. And are there people who have tried to do this, outsmart God? Well, yes. What about Jonah? Oh, he wants me to go to Nineveh. I'm going the opposite way. You think you're going to smelt me? Huh? I got this little fish for you. And this fish is going to gobble you up and three days later is going to burp you up on a beach and you're going to go anyhow. I hate for you to have to go through this, but you're going to do it. And he opposed God. He didn't want to do what God said. And we know what happened to him. Well, there was another guy, a big guy, Moses. Remember Moses? He didn't want to do what God said. Remember kind of whiny? He said, send somebody else. Don't send me. And he goes, do it. You're going to do it. But I can't speak very well. Your brother's going to speak for you. He's going to be like, or you're going to be like God to him. And and that's going to work well. And he still didn't want to do it. And remember when he kind of wasn't following through with his commitment that God put on him? God showed up. I believe it was Jesus. a Theophany in the Old Testament showed up and was going to kill Moses. He's going to take him out. And his wife, Zipporah. She is the one that said, you are a bridegroom of blood. She circumcised her son and touched the foreskin and the blood to his toes. Was he sleeping or something? You know, laying down. I don't know what was going on, but God was going to kill Moses. Moses didn't want to do it. The reluctant prophet. And he was the savior of all Israel. He opposed God as well. Or remember the king of Assyria. He was going to come down with King Hezekiah in 2 Kings. Chapter 18 and 19, he was going to come down and just wipe out the Israelites. And he had 185,000 men. 185,000 men. The stadium we used to have, that would hold, what, 50, 60, 70,000 people? 185,000. And his captain of the guard, the commander over his forces, He sent this message like who has opposed us and you can pray to your God if you want to but none of these other gods and all these other nations have been able to withstand our assault and it's going to happen to you and you better just give up. And of course Hezekiah sought after the Lord and said, Lord, what are we supposed to do? And what did God do? Sent an angel and killed all 185,000 in the Assyrian army. And the, the commander of the forces thought that he could thwart whatever God, Jehovah, what he wanted to do in the Old Testament. It just wasn't going to happen. Do you think you can thwart God's will for you? Like, what is God's will for you if he wants you to do something or accomplish something? Have you ever had the squeeze put on you, like God wants you to do something, and you're going, I don't want to do that. And he goes, go ahead, do this, or speak out, or go help somebody, and you don't want to do it? Sometimes I think he puts the squeeze on. Other times I think he just gives it to somebody else. You get to witness it and then you feel guilty that you didn't go forward. And why should we do that? If we hear God clearly, and sometimes we don't, but if we hear him clearly, we should just move forward. We're not going to thwart God's plan, and especially when it comes to salvation. That's not going to be thwarted. God is going to bring us to fruition and the full glorification of our bodies. That's going to happen. We cannot thwart his will. So did Gamaliel give good counsel? Yes, it was good counsel. Do not touch these men. Verse 40 His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, when I grew up, when my mom grew up, my mom told me the story how her mom, her name was Oval, she would tell them when they were disobedient, go out and get your own switch. And they would have to go out to the fruit trees, they had fruit trees out there, and break off their own switch, and that switch was like the paddle, and you got swacked. You know, swacked, that's a new word, a technical word. They got swacked on the bottom, my mom and her sisters, my aunts, and they had to go and get that Uh, and suffer the consequences. Now, when I grew up, uh, the belt was very common. Uh, There was a comedian that used to talk about the belt, if you remember him. It was Bill Cosby at the time. We had the records, and it was pretty funny listening to him get the belt. And we grew up in that era. If you did that today, you'd be thrown in jail. But back then... Uh, the belt was used, and that was the threat. And I think it went from the belt to the paddle, from the paddle to the spoon to the spoon to just talk to them and time out. I think that's kind of the progression it's taken. And to be flogged, to get an understanding of what being flogged is, it's usually a whip or a stick of some type. If you go over to Singapore and you break the rules over there, you can be caned. You know you know what a cane is, don't you? It's this long piece of like sugar cane. And it could be six feet long and they whack people on the back with that if they've been disobedient. There's some Americans who have had to suffer under that. And they've gone over there and they've done things they shouldn't have done. And they get beat with these things. And that's what happened to the apostles. They got beat. And, and it's not just a punch or two They get whacked on the back with one of those things, and they would have bruises, probably bleeding. And what was their attitude? I don't know. If if somebody hit me like that, that's something to fight against, you know? I, I wouldn't necessarily sit there and take it. But the apostles, they had no choice. They probably laid them out, tied their hands down, and beat them on the back, probably without any garments on, and they were suffering underneath this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, verse 41, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Who gets beat and walks away, going, "We were counted worthy." I, I, sorry, I wish I was more spiritual, but I don't relate to this. But these guys are apostles, and I don't see any complaining about the people who beat them. I don't see them turning against the Sadducees. They just took it and considered it a privilege to be beaten for the name of Christ. I want to be able to get there. I'm not there yet. I want to get there. Somebody beats me on the back. I I want to be like the apostles for the name of Christ. Now remember, if you're getting beat because you're stupid, don't say, I'm suffering for Christ. No, if you're getting beat because you've done something that's really dumb, don't think that you can bear up under it and just think you're okay, that it's all good. No, this, this is because you've been a direct witness for Christ. Maybe you go to a foreign country and you're persecuted because of your witness for Christ. That's when it becomes the privilege. That's when I believe the Holy Spirit gives the grace to endure such things. I read this and I kept on going over it and I'm going, wow, these guys are spiritual. And I want to get there. That should be an example for us. That we should want to get to that point where we would not condemn or open our mouths against those who would be persecuting us if they did it because we follow Christ. Even Philippians one twenty nine, it says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. So this is a privilege if we are witnesses for Christ and we suffer underneath it, the Lord gives us the grace, just like he did these apostles. Now, I pray that none of us have to go undergo this type of persecution. But if it comes, this is to be our attitude. Verse 42 says, Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The application of, the, of this is never shrink back if somebody tells you stop speaking in the name of jesus stop giving the gospel stop being that christian that promotes the christian ideals and the biblical the bible the christian judeo ethic which is out there stop doing that if somebody says that I'm going to do it all the harder. You know, that needs to be our attitude, that we're going to give the gospel, we're going to bring encouragement, we're going to tell them of eternal life and what it's all about, no matter what the consequences. And, you know, I I think that we live in a country where we don't have to worry about much of that. And I hope it stays like that. I don't know. But that certainly will purify a church, won't it? If the church starts to get purified by the persecution from the outside, you will know who the believers are and who they aren't. And I'm sure this uh, weeded out those in the church that didn't want to have their physical well-being in jeopardy. But that's what we're supposed to look at. And those who sinned inside the church, like Ananias and Sapphira that we talked about last week, of course, they were weeded out of the church. And God said, I will have a pure church. I want that church to walk and be that, that uh, woman who is dressed in white just like a, a bride who is waiting to meet the bridegroom. And so God blessed the church, and the gospel went out. Many people got saved. The opposition was still there. We'll see later as we go through the scriptures, the Sadducees and their jealousy was just pervasive, and even Paul, and we'll get to him a little later. And we are to obey God rather than men. And if suffering comes, we should bear up under it. And it's commendable if we do so. And the part I talked about being stupid, First Peter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. May we be able to do this. And in the slightest of ways, if we get ridiculed or people don't want to hear what we have to say, just take it with a grain of salt and say, Wow, okay, Lord, you called me to do this. And that should be our encouragement, especially at Christmas time. Speak about Jesus to everyone you can. Give them the gospel. Say, you know, I'm buying these gifts for somebody, but Jesus is the greatest gift, and I'll never be able to match up to that particular gift. Have you heard about Jesus? Oh, where do you go to church? Hey, do you, have you ever looked in the Bible? Do you know if what he said was true? And it's as easy as that. What stops us from doing that? Us. That we stop ourselves. I don't want to do that. I don't want to cause controversy. You know, this idea of being tolerant, remember in our society? We're supposed to be tolerant of everything that is out there except the Christians. And that's the way our society goes. May you stand up. May you go against the flow. May you open up your mouth when the opposition arises, but do so with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks Not because it's Thanksgiving, but because of the apostles who were just so faithful going out there and rejoice over the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer for you. Father, we know that life is full of suffering, full of heartache, full of sorrow. But we rejoice for we have a Savior, one who called us to your glorious grace. May we give this grace freely and without hesitation. We long for the day when we will see you, Lord, and be able to rejoice with you. May you help us to be patient until then. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing our closing song.